Welcome to the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability Autism Conversations in the Schools podcast. This series, as well as our online trainings, have been developed in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices. We hope that you enjoy these podcasts, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district, please contact the UNM CDD at 505-272-1852. Welcome to this series of podcasts on evidence-based practices sponsored by the New Mexico Public Education Department and presented by the Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities Division of the Center for Development and Disability. Before we get to the content of each podcast, it's important that you know what evidence-based practices are. An evidence-based practice is, this is a quote, an instructional intervention procedure or set of procedures for which researchers have provided an acceptable level of research uh, that shows that the practice produces positive outcomes for children, youth, and or adults with ASD. Um, And that's from the Autism Professional Development Center. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about is focusing primarily on children with autism spectrum disorder, But you should really keep in mind that especially what we're talking about today uh, applies to all children. So all children that are in in schools uh, benefit from the multi-layered systems of support. The research is then integrated with clinical practice in the context of uh, patient or student characteristics, culture, and preferences to make decisions about the use of evidence-based practices, and that's from the National Institutes of Health. So again, keep in mind that while we um, are talking about children with disabilities, primarily autism, we are also talking, especially today, about all children in schools. So two podcasts for 2023 are going to focus on multi-layered systems of support, uh, abbreviated MLSS, which is New Mexico's comprehensive overhaul of response to intervention. Multi-layered systems of supports improves support systems by removing administrative barriers to provide timely evidence-based supports and focuses on holistic student success through robust family partnerships. And that's a paraphrase from the New Mexico Public Education Department website. And if you'd like uh, more history about that, you can certainly um, um, email me um, after this podcast if you'd like, and I can give you some more information about the history, but we don't want to spend a lot of time uh, with historical, uh, what, what what used to happen and what happens now. The key here is timely evidence-based supports, and as we talk, you'll be hearing a lot about the layers. So just in general, layer one is universal supports for all students. So this means students uh, without disabilities, students with disabilities, uh, just all students, uh, students with uh, cultural and language differences, all students. Uh, 
Layer two includes layer one. So when you when students um, require layer two supports, that doesn't mean that they no longer receive layer one supports. Layer two includes layer one as well as targeted interventions for some students. And layer three includes layers one and two, as well as intensive interventions for a few students. Uh, joining me for these podcasts is my fellow board certified behavior analyst, colleague and friend, Heather Deluzio. Heather also works for the Albuquerque Public Schools. In part one of this multi-layered systems of support, we'll be talking about layers one and two, and in part two, we'll be talking about layer three. This is sort of a, a two-part podcast. Layer one has all the introductory information, the inf information about evidence-based practices, and then in part two, we're just going to go right into talking about uh, layer three. Thank you for joining me today, Heather. It's always a it's always a fun conversation when we can geek out together about behavior supports, which we uh, have done for many many years. So, would you introduce yourself and give us an idea of why you think that the multi layered levels of support is so important for all classroom teachers to understand and implement? Hi, Marianne. So, like you said, I am a board certified behavior analyst, but I'm also a special education teacher. Um, I'm dual licensed in New Mexico, but primarily my experience is working in special education. And my opinion about why MLSS is so important for classroom teachers to understand is that it's such a big shift from first you do this, then you do this, then you do this, to looking at a more integrated experience about how we're providing support to students across multiple domains. So looking at behavioral supports academic supports, social and emotional supports, and how those domains interact with each other. Um, and while a student might need more intensive support or instruction in one domain, they may not need that in another domain. Another nice thing, cool thing about MLSS is really this emphasis on access to a high quality core curriculum and culturally and linguistically responsive instructional materials um, that are implemented for all students with a high level of fidelity that are strongly linked to our instructional standards and include, I want, you know, as a behavior analyst, you and I can appreciate the high emphasis on data and data making, database decision making throughout the MLSS framework. Thanks. And, and yes, I, I agree completely. And uh, I know how, well, we both know how frustrating uh, it was for teachers uh, with, uh, uh, to some extent, with a response to intervention and uh, frustrating not only for teachers, but also for, for families and for schools who really needed to uh, be able to support students with disabilities without automatically sort of pigeonholing them into special education or or uh, different kinds of things. So I, I think uh, we really appreciate the multi uh, layers of support and, and you have certainly had more experience with it than, than I. So um, I'm really glad that we're talking about it today. Heather, in your experience as a, as a classroom teacher and a mentor and a consultant to many other teachers, 
Could you explain briefly what layer one behavioral supports are, uh, to which students they apply, and then also what a skillful application of layer one behavioral strategies look like? Because I think that's uh, what our, our listeners might be the most interested in, is in their personal classrooms, what is it going to look like if I'm doing an effective job with layer one supports? Absolutely. So, you know, within the MLSS framework, those those layer one behavioral supports are really um, taken from this positive behavior intervention and supports framework. Um, and the crux of that framework, right, is that we're identifying key behaviors that we we would like students to engage in in school environments. We're defining those behaviors clearly so that the students know the expectation the staff knows the expectation, the community knows the expectation. And then the highlight of that, right, is we have to teach it. We can't expect kids to just perform behaviors without that teaching part. I'm making sure that we're using evidence-based teaching practices and sound instructional methods to do that. And, and then also that we're providing students with reinforcement for engaging with those behaviors across their learning environments. So, the behavioral supports at layer one are really focused on skill acquisition. They're focused on ensuring that there's a common understanding of what the expectation is across school environments and that that expectation is consistent across school environments for students. And so when we want those for all of our students, regardless of whether they need more intensive intervention um, later on down the line or they need more intensive supports later on down the line, we have to first ensure that they have access to this high quality um, base level of behavioral intervention, that we are ensuring that we are implementing those interventions with fidelity across environments um, for all of our students before we look at whether or not maybe a student needs some additional support to meet the expectation of the environment or additional support in learning how to perform the skills that are going to allow them to meet that expectation of the environment. And so when we talk about what effective behavioral supports at layer one look like, we want to make sure that A, they're positively based. We're teaching and we're teaching students what to do, not what not to do. <laughs> so we want to make sure that we're providing them with clear explanations of what to do. Um, models and demonstrations of how to do that. What does that look like? Um, what does that look like in the classroom? You know, if the expectation is um, treating each other with respect, what does that look like in the classroom? What does that look like in the hallway? What does that look like, um, you know, if we're thinking about middle schoolers when we're going to our lockers and passing period and <laughs> switching out our stuff? And again, we want to make sure that we're focusing on non- punitive methods of intervention. We are teaching. The, high, the emphasis here at Layer 1 is teaching kids what the expectation is and how to do that, um, and really focusing on that proactive prevention of problem behavior. And what we know is that when we're implementing these supports with fidelity across environments, across um, you know, different spaces that students access throughout their, their school day, we're going to be meeting most students' needs. You know, 80 to 90% of students can be successful with just these base levels of intervention. 
um, just by forming relationships with students and having those clear expectations and having systems to reinforce when we see students engaging in those behaviors that um, we'd like them to you know, be learning and using across their school day. And as a part of that, if, to know that we're doing those things, of course, we have to take data, <laughs> um, which comes back to that data making, data-based decision-making. And we wanna focus too, first on not, oh, none of the students are able to do this, looking at the environment. Oh, we see a high level of students struggling with being respectful in the cafeteria. What other environmental modifications can we make to support students in understanding what that looks like in that context. So it's not always just about changing student behavior. Sometimes, or a lot of times I'll argue, it's about changing the behavior of the adults in the environment and changing the um, context in which students are behaving. So I was just uh, uh, appreciating what, what you had to say. And I think the the thing that just really appealed to me is, is the idea, of course, that it all positive, that these are positive interventions, because we know from experience that children really do not uh, respond uh, to uh, punitive uh, interventions very well. And they may stop certain behaviors, but they don't teach. And I really appreciate the emphasis. Uh, that, that you said on um, skill acquisition and uh, teaching. And many come to school, you know, it, in the past, we have expected children to come to school with skills uh, that they can sit and listen. Uh, participate in um, learning activities. And that's just uh, not really true. And especially um, post-COVID, uh, where kids were out of school or didn't start school at, on in a timely way. Um, and, and many children are educated, um, you know, possibly educated in, in different environments. So um, what kinds of skills, you know, when we think about skills that have to be taught on the first day of school, uh, might uh, teachers, you know, effectively consider as they're, you know, they're thinking about their their first days? Teachers might consider things like uh, transitional routines. How do we enter and exit the classroom? That's That tends to be, <laughs> right, one of the first things that happens for students when they come in. How do they ask for help? How do students, what's the expectation during a whole group instruction and small group instruction and individual work times? Are they allowed to get up and consult with their peers? Are they allowed to um, ask a question? Do they have a procedure? Do you need to raise your hand? Do you need to walk up to the teacher's desk? So just making sure that they have a clear understanding of a lot of those transitional routines throughout their, their classroom day can be a great place to start. Also making sure that they understand those base expectations of the school environment or the classroom environment. Um, you know, a lot of times we have classroom rules. So if we have those classroom rules or classroom expectations, making sure that we are identifying those for students, clearly defining those for students and giving them clear examples of what meeting that expectation or following that rule looks like and what it doesn't look like so that we are really clear with kids that they understand what they need to do in that classroom situation, what the expectation is, and then also making sure that they understand how that's going to positively impact the classroom environment. I think sometimes we forget to give the kids the why of why, 
why is this a rule in my classroom? What's the purpose of it? Um, so I think sometimes too, following up with the, here's the expectation, here's what it looks like, here's what it doesn't look like, and here's why I have that as an expectation in my classroom can be really helpful, especially for our students, you know, in middle and high school and upper elementary, um, where they're starting to kind of want to know why, why, why do I have to do that, right? <laughs> A question we get from kids a lot. <laughs> well, and that's a great example too, because uh, you know, a lot of times in special education, we're think thinking about individual uh, supports and teaching children as individuals, and that certainly is extremely important, even at the layer one level, uh, for those students who are struggling a little bit to be able to break things down and help them understand individually. But also, we need to uh, remember not to, to not to take for granted the fact that students will support one another. Uh, so as, as a group, as they learn as a group, that they can begin to support one another. And that's uh, just a, such a, an important aspect of the layer one supports as well. Um, you also mentioned, uh, and, and I, I really am so glad that you brought out the data, uh, that 80 to 90 percent of, you know, just general squirrely classroom behaviors can be present, prevented using systems of positive behavior supports. Uh, and, and then there are, um, and we'll talk in the layer two about some of the more targeted supports for, for those, that other uh, 10%. But um, it really is uh, so easy uh, to start the year off, uh, as you said, with, with just teaching basic things, walking in line, standing you know, for a drink of water, uh, what do you do on the playground, all of those kinds of things. And um, you also mentioned it's not only just teaching the first time, but then there's practice and reinforcement for those kinds of things. So that was that was great, a uh, great summary. Um, would you talk a little bit because you mentioned about um, a big part of it is uh, changing the behavior of adults in the environment, and and you and I have had a lot of experience uh, with that. Uh, so um, talk a little bit about how you have worked with uh, uh, teachers, both as a colleague and as a, uh, a support teacher uh, to um, help them think about how to change the culture of the school to one that support positive uh, behavior supports. And, and thanks for bringing that up to you. Uh, how important is the school culture, right? And recognizing that one of the really interesting and, and kind of cool things about MLSS is it looks at how we support students, not just from the perspective of what is the teacher doing, but what is the school doing? What is the administration doing? What is the district doing? And understanding that all of those things in, directly impact the individual student. And so think about that. We want to make sure that too, one of the big things that I work with teachers on is building relationships. We know when we have a good relationship with somebody, we interact with them in a very different way than maybe when we don't have a good relationship with somebody. Um, and that really touches on the foundation of PBIS or positive behavior interventions and supports, as well as social emotional learning. Relationship building is a huge component um, of both practices for our students at all levels. Um, but if we start building that foundation at layer one, we are in a good spot when students do require more intensive supports. 
So I work a lot with teachers on looking at how their behavior might be um, impacting the student's behavior from a curiosity perspective. What would happen if I did this instead of this when the student engages in maybe a disruptive behavior or something that um, I don't want to see in the classroom? And certainly as a classroom teacher myself, I had excellent mentors like yourself, um, who helped me realize how my behavior impacted the behavior of the students in my classroom and how that was a bi-directional relationship. It wasn't just the students behaving. It was me behaving in the environment as well. And those things um, definitely impact each other. And so I, sometimes I will kind of sit back and watch teachers and, and make some observational notes. We'll have a conversation about what happened. Um, maybe think a little bit more about why they responded the way they did when a student struggled or maybe um, didn't meet an expectation of the classroom. And then maybe brainstorms some different ways we could respond and think about that from, uh, you know, kind of an experimental perspective of what would happen if I did this? Would something different happen? And giving it a try, right? Like there's no harm in trying. What's the worst that can happen? The, we continue to have a problem behavior, right? We're already having that. So that's one way I help teachers think about their interaction styles in the classroom. And certainly as a teacher myself, that's how I think about my interaction style when I'm working with students as well is doing a little reflection after an interaction of what went well, what didn't go well, maybe what could I try different next time? That is really so helpful, and I'm glad that you mentioned that about relationship, and and you and I know that there is currently a lot of research going on uh, that indicates that, uh, you know, when you have a relationship with, you know, we as behavior analysts with you, when you have a relationship with a client or a client's family, uh, that the intervention is likely to go a whole lot better. And of course, really skillful teachers have known this for years. They know that, you know, if they have good relationships with their, with their students and uh, when their students uh, know that they have the power to have all the goodies, the, the teacher can give them access um, to everything that they want. And also, um, you you mentioned uh, before, and again this time, the skill acquisition piece and talking with teachers. And um, I know that you and I have talked about this too. That it is often helpful when you're sitting with teachers and they're frustrated about uh, particular uh, behaviors, or uh, either as a group or an individual. That it is really interesting to brainstorm uh, what it is that the children need to learn what it is that the students need to learn and not just assume that they're doing it because they, you know, want to make your life miserable or, you know, that they're always trying to get out of work or that they're always uh, uh, trying to, to do something else. It really is important to think about what it is that they don't know and how it is uh, that we can teach that. And so that sort of comes around a little bit to uh, the topic for me of, of data collection. Uh, and I know this, you know, is every teacher's favorite topic, uh, but it doesn't need to be quite as difficult as it, it, it sounds like. Uh, and, you know, that there are some simple ways to do that, even with a classroom of, you know, 30 kids, there are some simple ways to do that. So uh, if you could just talk briefly about that, and then also how that data collection that doesn't have to be, you know, for weeks and weeks at a time, or even days at 
a time uh, that doesn't have to have to happen uh, in a really um, difficult way and how that can really help us understand what it is that what's the next step what is it that they don't know what are we going to do next how can we approach it sort of as uh, an experiment or you know you and I have talked a lot about detective work and how much fun it is uh, to be a detective so if you could talk a little bit about those things as well. So I think from a data collection perspective, right, and we're thinking still about those layer one supports, it might be as simple as starting by identifying a period of the day where things don't seem to be going real well. Um, you know, maybe it's your fifth period English class or, um, you know, it's right after lunch um, where you notice like, man, I am having to redirect kids a lot or, you know, I've noticed these couple of students really being disruptive during this time period. And so just doing some simple noticing doesn't have to be anything fancy, maybe just jotting down at the end of a class period like that went well, that didn't go well. Um, and then looking over a couple of days, do you see a pattern? Are you noticing, man, it's like every day around this time we're struggling. And then thinking a little bit more carefully about what's going on. Is it always the same subject? Is it always presented in the same way? Um, is there an event like lunch or recess or passing period or something going on right before that? And then just looking at, you don't have to take data, you know, the whole class period, maybe pick a little snippet and do a little sample of quick check of how many kids are on task during independent work time. You have a class of 25, there's six off task. And maybe do that for a couple of days and see if you see a pattern like, yeah, you know, we're getting about, you know, this many kids off task during that independent work work time every day. Do I need to maybe go back and reteach what the expectation is? Am I acknowledging appropriate student behavior frequently enough during that that little chunk of time and considering some of those things. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to take data for weeks and weeks. It can be a couple of days. You could do a single day, I would say a couple of days, but um, you know, just to get a good picture about what where the struggle is. Maybe the kids just had an off day. They right, children are people too and they have off days. So I think from a data collection period, it's first noticing kind of are there patterns around when we're having a hard time, then diving into those time periods a little bit more and looking out. Maybe the kids are not, need more opportunity to practice meeting the expectation. Maybe I was unclear about what they're supposed to be doing during that time. Am I reminding them before we transition to that activity about what they what they should should be doing during that time? Am I making sure that I'm acknowledging um, providing some sort of reinforcement for kids when they are doing what I'd like them to be doing during that time. Yes, that's it's all great, and I really um, like the emphasis. Uh, like what you just what you just ended up with is what am I doing? Because sometimes, uh, you know, as as we said, sometimes it is the, the teacher likes to think that they're always in control and that they've you know got it together and they know what they're doing. But we as, uh, and all of us as as teachers who, especially those of us who have a little experience, uh, recognize that there are days, moments, uh, and um, <laughs> certain 
certain, you know, that fifth period class or whatever uh, that really impact our behavior. And so it is important uh, sometimes even maybe to take a little data on that behavior, on our behavior as well, and make sure that, you know, our uh, the majority of our interactions are positive. Uh, and, you know, I, I used to tell teachers, you know, five out of um, six ought to be positive interactions rather than corrections or negative interactions of some kind. And so make sure that we give lots of positive reinforcement. And sometimes, you know, I have suggested to teachers, they just take data. How many positive remarks do you make versus negative remarks in, you know, a very short period of time, just to give an idea for yourself, as well as for those students. And then, you know, this sort of leads us into, uh, I think, a little bit of a discussion around um, level two, where there are targeted supports. So if the if your data collection shows, you know, these, you know, three students always struggle. And it seems like, you know, the others are are learning and, and getting a, a good handle on, on how to interact in the classroom and how to, to, to do the things that they're asked to do uh, and can participate in this positive um, behavior supports. But these guys are having a little bit of a harder time. Um, and, you know, there's always a group, <laughs> almost always a group uh, that are going to require just a little bit more. So that leads us into the uh, level two um, supports. And so talk a little bit about some of that. So you find that little group that's just having a tough time. And what are the level two supports? And also talk about, you know, when we begin to think about special education, uh, think about uh, what, um, what constitutes uh, a need for a referral to special education and, you know, what kinds of things we need to do uh, again before we, we think about that. And, you know, that's kind of a complicated question. So uh, I appreciate your, your patience with it. Yeah, so when we think about level two supports, right, like you said, that's that five to 10% of our student body with that, maybe even though we have all of these really great foundational layer one systems in place, we're implementing those with fidelity and our data is showing that again, like 80 to 90% of our students are able to engage in those desired behaviors in the, the various school settings and are being successful. And then we kind of have our, our, our little group, <laughs> um, our little group of strugglers. Um, and for those students, there's a lot of different avenues that are available. But what we're looking at is refining our, our supports a little bit for those students to really identify what is the skill that's missing, kind of getting to the crux of maybe a little bit more about why are they struggling? What is there a skill deficit? Do they not understand the expectation? Do they need some additional kinds of supports and reminders, you know, thinking about things like we still want to make sure that we're providing positive reinforcement. Do they need that in a little bit more concrete way? Do they need to um, maybe see their progress towards, um, you know, that desired outcome for them? So things like token economy, we can use things like self-monitoring in my opinion, a strategy that is not <laughs> used enough, but certainly has a solid research base behind it of being effective and helping students monitor and manage their own behavior, which again ties into that social emotional learning standard of 
having or being able to engage in um, the ability of, to manage their own emotions and, and behave in ways that are beneficial, not just to them, but also to the school community and, uh, as well. But so again, those supports that we might consider for students like that, we might look at things like uh, you know, a health and wellness team getting together to support. Um, that student and brainstorming ideas. And, and the, again, drawing it back to MLSS, the nice thing about MLSS is it's not, the teacher is no longer on an island. It's a collaborative process across multiple layers of school, whether that's, you know, reaching out for support from your counselors, your administration, bringing the family in. Um, and certainly a huge component of MLSS is family engagement and, um, collaboration around how we support students. And that, again, those layer two interventions and supports really are where we are focusing in on that smaller group. And we're providing intervention at a more intense level. So maybe we're providing small group instruction uh, more frequently for that group of students um, across their week. We're including some of those more targeted evidence-based practices, things like self-management strategies, um, the use of um, more specific positive reinforcement strategies, integrating things like token economies. And there's a shift from kind of this general data collection of behaviors to more specific data collection to monitor that student's progress and ensure that we're seeing that student being able to acquire the skills that they need based on the interventions that we're providing to the student. Yeah, you. I mean, you gave some wonderful examples of specific uh, uh, strategies. So token economies, uh, self-monitoring, um, and then uh, more intensive intervention. But I really particularly liked what you said about uh, engaging, beginning to engage the family. Um, and I, I think, um, again, that sort of goes back to the relationship issue and the fact that uh, part of positive behavior supports, part of the layer one supports are making sure um, or are, you know, helping the family to trust you, to know that you have your their students' best interest at mind, in mind, and to know that you're not just, um, you know, sort of out to get their kid out of your class, uh, that the family needs to, to trust you. And the families have so much, uh, if they're able, they have so much that they're uh, able, that they could. Uh, provide for us in terms of, you know, their students' behavior or the things that their students struggle with. Uh, so I think um, part of the whole um, the whole multi-layer systems of support is that family engagement and making sure that families are a part of, uh, of the student's education, a part of the student's successes, um, and, and, not, and not blaming the family for what they can't do. And, and certainly there are some families that can be far more engaged than others, uh, but our responsibility is to reach out in terms of, you know, relationship with those families and uh, to look at ways that we can engage them for their students' benefits. And, and I uh, really appreciate that. I also uh, appreciate that you mentioned, you know, reaching out to the health and wellness team. So the health and wellness team is not just to, you know, get the kid out of your class or to get the, the kid into special education. The health and wellness team is there to provide uh, the supports that, that they um, possibly can, can think about. And it's an opportunity to... Um, 
possibly engage other professionals, the other professionals in your school uh, to just, you know, could you come take a look at this and see if you have some ideas that I don't. Uh, and that's that's not always possible given their caseloads and, and given how busy uh, schools and classrooms are. Uh, but that is um, a part of, you know, looking at uh, the level two supports and uh, ways that we can think about uh, kids. And um, there are also, you know, I, I think, um, and I, I haven't had too much experience with them, but there are, you know, little student clubs or um, homework clubs or, um, you know, having students just check in uh, with, with a, a teacher that is really uh, close to them and can provide them with positive behavior supports. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add about the level two supports? I think the emphasis for, for me, what I get from MLSS is the collaborative nature of, of level two, uh, layer two, and, and making sure that it's, it's not just looking at what else can the teacher do, but like you said, using that health and wellness team, and I have a colleague who is so, um, so skilled at this, um, but using that health and wellness team as a collaborative problem solving um group and that can that can include the family as well and getting together and identifying how we can creatively maybe support that student whether it's engagement and maybe some after school clubs drawing in some personal meaning um, and values into that that school engagement for the student um, maybe there's a staff member that connects very well with the family it doesn't have to always be the teacher it could be the school counselor a librarian, uh, you know, maybe it's the office clerk. Um, you, you know, there's we're blessed in schools in so many ways that we have so many different people we get to work with that we have to remember that the family may may build that connection with with somebody who's not the classroom teacher, and that's our way of bringing that family into the fold and and making them a part of that collaborative team. And our students form relationships with all different kinds of people, though, you know, the, the people who work in our cafeterias, I've had students that have, you know, those are their favorite people in the whole world. Um, we can bring those people in. Um, you know, if they have the opportunity to build relationships with our students and maybe connect with our students in a, a special way, it, bring them in and, and help them have them join our collaborative team and how we can support this student and, and help them um, acquire the skills that they need and be successful in our classrooms. And, and thinking about it from, you know, the provision of special education services, one of the kind of interesting things and shifts from RTI that MLSS does is special education is not tier three. Um, students who receive special education services can access, you know, layer one, layer two, layer three services at any space. You don't have to get to special education to get layer three supports and services. You can be a student in general education getting layer three supports and services. So it kind of takes, you know, that old RTI model where first we do this, then we do layer two, and maybe we have a student assistance team, and then we make that referral for special education, we're kind of, sh with MLSS, we shift away from that in the sense that we're now looking at making that referral for special education if we suspect disability 
or if our data says that, that may be a factor. So again, that database decision-making versus the kind of step, step, step procedure to get to special education. Um, special education is now kind of not a series of checkbox to get there, but rather a team decision about whether that student may benefit or may require the supports and services um, that are available through a special education um, referral. Uh, that is that is so helpful, and I really appreciate what you said about uh, the multi-layered systems of support are not how you get kids into special education, uh, which uh, was the case with with uh, RTI. Um, and so the the idea of of course bringing in the whole school and uh, and using what you know about the student uh, possibly to teach others to uh, to interact a little better and and that kind of even goes back to our layer one discussion is uh, what can we help the cafeteria staff to understand uh, in terms of providing some positive supports for the kids so that they they do behave appropriately in the cafeteria or you know the PE teacher that sees everybody or uh, you know the the duty teachers what are the kinds of the positive behavior supports that we can build in there and then looking at what are maybe some more specific supports uh, that certain students need and that may be all that they need is just a little bit of extra care in terms of skill acquisition or uh, a little bit more involvement in the school community or uh, a little bit of, you know, communication with the parents not to say, you know, not to involve the parents in any kind of punitive action, but to help the parents understand this student needs to learn this particular skill and here's how we're doing it and here's maybe how you can help. Help, and do you have some ideas for me? Uh, those are really great things. And and uh, you just uh, uh, transitioned beautifully into talking about tier three. And I'm so glad that you started off by saying uh, tier three does not mean special education, because that is how we're used to thinking about it from response to intervention, that this is, this is where kids are going to get the super targeted support that they need only in special education, and it's not possible in general education classrooms. Um, so I think we're going to end up this discussion of um, the tier one and two supports of the multi-level uh, layers of support. We're going to finish up this podcast uh, with that thought in mind. And then I uh, certainly encourage you, especially those of you who um, do have some students who need uh, some special specialized supports uh, to join us again uh, when we talk about level three supports. So thank you so much, Heather, for joining us. And we look forward to um, being able to get together again and talk with you about the level three supports. Thank you. 